wellnesscouch.com, streaming wellness into your lives. Welcome to Backchat, exploring the five pillars of health with Dr. Paul Bergamo and Dr. Anthony Coxon. Welcome to Backchat. My name is Paul Bergamo and it's great to be here in our next podcast. Backchat is about being your best. It does this by exploring the five pillars of health. It refers to being your best in thinking, moving, eating, sleeping, and also in your neurology. Today's Backchat will cover the pillar of moving. Tell me as always, it's a great pleasure to introduce my fellow chiropractic co-host, Anthony Coxon. G'day, Anthony. How are you going? Paul, I'm doing extra well. Good to see you. Excellent. You too. You too. Now, I'm going to open up with something a bit different. How's that? You've been a coach of your son in basketball, I remember. I remember you were coaching for a semi-final. I think we had an, a, 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 a conference for the CAA, and you weren't there because you were hard-nosed at a semi-final basketball under, coaching event. Under-12 basketball is pretty serious, mate, at the uh, local level. And, you know, head coach, I say head coach only because I've never played basketball, but uh, Joel had a, a very good coach who's coached at the high level. I just copied whatever he did. And uh, as best I could, I uh, I did my job out there. And it's good fun. It's it good is, fun being a coach. Look, it is great fun. And, you know, we, like yourself, a bit passionate about it. And we took over the, the park orchards under 13 uh, coaching role last year. And um, there's a game against Ashburton that Caleb came up to me actually after the game. You reckon he injured his finger at the start in warm-up, said nothing to his dad, dad coach to, I think, a loss, unfortunately. Okay, mum, she's a bit sore. I said, mate, you know, you'll be right. It's a bit okay. of toughen up, son. Kind of That's it, sort of attitude, mate. Bit of ice, you'll be okay, right? And then, of course, a week or two proceeds, and he's sort of saying not much, and he's coming up to me. And then a, a common friend to our health expert tonight, Paul Haas, who's a physiotherapist, is actually one of our, our trainers in the club, which is yeah. fantastic. Paul taps me on the shoulder and says, mate, Caleb's not saying, he hasn't said much to you, but I think we need to get this finger checked out. And I go, what do you mean? He shows me, and he shows me, and I go, yeah, I think you might be right. So is this where guilt starts to set in? Is it, it Paul? Is, you know, a bit, you neglected know. father? got to admit it did yeah. a little bit. Then, uh, Jesus, what have I done here? So long and short of it is, is that because of this, we have this person we're interviewing tonight in regards yeah. to it all as, a, as an expert, as a hand surgeon, because uh, Jason looked after Caleb so terrifically in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in almost in a few days he was down there seeing uh, Jason for some corrective surgery, which was fantastic. So without further ado, let us introduce Jason. Jason's originally from the northern beaches of Sydney where he went to medical school and completed his internship. After his intern year, he moved to the United States where he did general surgery in Boston and orthopedic training in Los Angeles. Jason completed a fellowship in hand and peripheral nerve surgery at North Shore Hospital in Sydney and is currently Director of Training Orthopedics at the Downing Hospital and has a private practice at Orthosport Victoria. Hi, Jason. How are you going? Yeah, well, thanks, guys. How are you guys doing? Very good, thank you. Now, I have to thank you for saving my bacon there with my son, firstly. Yeah, look, my pleasure. Uh, it's a typical thing of any health professional and their kids. You know, they, uh, they tend to get the... Uh, the worst treatment to start with because we're always, uh, you'll be fine, don't worry about it. And eventually we say, oh, maybe you should go and see someone. But, yeah, it's a, it's a common trait that uh, health professionals' kids uh, generally don't get don't get looked at first up. 
So did, can I ask from that experience, do you find that these kids tend to negotiate financially sort of rich, uh, rich compensation like NBA passes like my son did as a, oh, as a sweetener? Absolutely. It's like bad football or gym or something. There's always something that they're bargaining for if you, if you do the wrong thing. Okay, I feel a bit better then. A- any opportunity. So let's, no, absolutely. Let, let's get into it, Jason. Now, hand surgeon and, and you're one of a, a list of a few orthopedic surgeons that's been on our show recently. So thank you so much. We've had we've had the foot, we've had the spine, and tonight we've got the mm. hand. So, so what is the most? And I've got an idea in my hand, uh, in my hand, in my head, uh, what the most common injury or treat or, or problem you might treat. But I'm going to guess and say it's osteoarthritis of the thumb. Am I wrong? Well, you're pretty close. The, uh, it's one, but missed not by quite. that much. <laughs> okay. missed, yeah, missed by that much. That's well, right. you know, one of your, one of your uh, five pillars being neurology, it's actually a neurological issue. Okay. And it's, uh, and it's a couple times. Couple times, of course. Anthony, I mean, so, what do you do, yeah, you mate? I'm mean, orthopedic, not neurology. neurology. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Oh, so yeah. it is by far the most common thing I see. Not necessarily the most common thing I operate on, uh, but I do operate on it a lot. Uh, but it's by far and away the most common thing people present with either in isolation or actually, in fact, it often occurs uh, with other conditions as well. So and it, it is very common. So maybe just for our back chat listeners, many of which are just general public, of course, um, explain what carpal tunnel syndrome is. Yeah, um, so there's a lot of misconceptions about what it is and what it isn't. And um, I actually was watching a TV show the other day where one of one doctor was talking about carpal tunnel and had it all back to front, which I found interesting. It's one of the few times I've actually tweeted into a TV show. Oh, um, wasn't a chiropractor, but, by the way, Jason, was it? No, no, no. No, no if you are, it's okay. No, you can no, proceed. No. It's okay. It's good. Uh, so, so it's a constellation of symptoms that really is um, about numbness and tingling in the hand. Yeah. And it's important to the part of the hand that actually gets the numbness and tingling, and it's the thumb, the index finger, and the middle finger, and then half of the ring finger. And that's the classic part of uh, carpal tunnel syndrome. So if you don't have numbness and tingling in those digits, then it's you know, less likely that you've got carpal tunnel. The other thing that is really super important is uh, when the symptoms occur. And one of the things that I always ask is what happens at night? You know, without trying to lead the patient on, you know, as to say, oh, what's you know what their answer should be, but usually people wake up at night time with their hand feeling dead or numb, and they describe it as having a loss of circulation, or they can't feel it properly. They have to hang it over the side of the bed at two or three o'clock in the morning and shake it, or if it's really bad, get up and walk around and you know, move it around so that the uh, the feeling comes back in the hand, and it can last for you know thirty forty minutes for some people when it's really severe. And so that's that's the most important probably diagnostic historical sign that I look for is uh, is you know what happens at night are you waking up at night time which part of the hand goes numb um, the more significant it is the more symptoms people will get during the daytime so they might get numbness and tingling when they're driving so driving for long periods of time they'll get their, their hand will start to go numb if they're operating tools or if they're particularly staying in one position for a certain for a um, period of time. Because that's part of the reason why people tend to get carpal tunnel is a prolonged position either in the, the wrist bent forwards or the wrist bent backwards. That tends to be uh, when people get their symptoms. And at night, that's what we do. We tend to sleep with our hand under our chin or you know, either flexed or extended, and, and that uh, makes the pressure in the carpal tunnel worse. And you get pressure on the median nerve. So it's a, it's a nerve compression problem. So, Jason, you mentioned that that's uh, one of them or the most common uh, problem you see, but not necessarily the most common 
problem that you perform surgery on. So what other tests would you do and what treatment recommendations would you make in most cases with carpal tunnel syndrome? So generally, again, it really depends how severe it is. If somebody's got very mild symptoms that really come and go and they only get them occasionally, then most of those people can be treated non-operatively. And as a general philosophy, I think that if you can avoid surgery, that's a good thing. Um, so generally speaking, it'll be either a splint or just some education about what it is and understanding why you get it. And then often just a splint at night time for a short period of time, even if it's just for a month or two, that can often settle people's symptoms. Especially, you know, in ladies when they're pregnant, they, they get it frequently when, uh, when they're pregnant. So during that period of time, that's, you know, obviously a temporary issue. So just being able to understand why they get it. So a splint is often, uh, I often prescribe early on. If it's a little bit more significant and they haven't had the symptoms for too long, then I'll often do a steroid injection to the carpal tunnel. And that, if somebody's had symptoms for less than six months um, and also, again, the symptoms come and go, then that, that's actually got a pretty high success rate early on. It's not so good if you've got had symptoms for a longer period of time and also if you've got carpal tunnel because of another reason, for instance, you've had a fracture or a trauma associated with it. But, it, but it's a, certainly a non-operative thing that you can try to settle down the symptoms. Um, so I'll often do those two things first uh, before I before I consider you know, surgery. And, and you know, people want to are happy trying the non-operative things first. And I think it's important to do those things first before just jumping straight into surgery. There certainly are some things where I recommend surgery straight up. When you have uh, symptoms that are there all the time, so if you've got constant pins and needles and constant numbness and tingling, then I think that's really important because you're getting closer to the point where you can end up with permanent damage to your nerve. Yeah. And so even if you have an operation in that situation, then that doesn't fix that problem. So I'm always a bit more concerned when somebody has constant symptoms and then particularly when they've got loss of muscle power and muscle bulk, so in the, the fleshy part of your thumb, so the little fatty bit in your thumb there, if those muscles start to waste away, then that's a, a very important sign on examination that uh, your carpal tunnel is pretty severe and, and often that doesn't actually fully recover even if you do do the operation. But So, you know, those sort of standard non-operative things I try first if the, if the symptoms are mild. I sometimes, I also get a nerve conduction study, Yep, uh, but not always. I, uh, I get a nerve conduction study if it's if the symptoms and signs are not classic. So if there's a classic history and a classic examination, then I don't think you need a nerve conduction study. But if it's not quite right, then I'll get a nerve conduction study. Now, now the, the, the physical examination findings, apart from the numbness and tingling and the wasting, I generally flex the wrist for a period of time, up to a minute, to see if that reproduces the symptoms. And I'll also press just over the carpal tunnel to see, again to see if that reproduces the symptoms. And then there's a sign called a called Tennell's sign, which is where you tap along the line of the nerve. And as you're tapping tapping along the line of the nerve, people who've got carpal tunnel will often get a, an, le an electric shock like feeling that zings into the hand. And that's a that's again a, a fair fair sign that they've got a uh, carpal tunnel. So they're the things I look for. Excellent, Jason. So look, with any surgery, there's always fears and uncertainties. Can you elaborate some of the biggest misconceptions with regards to hand surgery that you've come across in your, your career? Yeah, so the, the biggest misconception, well, Anthony mentioned arthritis at the base of the thumb. The biggest misconception, I think, is that people come to me and say, oh, look, I know there's nothing you can do about it, but I've got arthritis in my hand. And so people come to me and say, oh, I've got arthritis. I know you can't do anything, but I just wanted to you know, have a look at it. 
and it's so far from the truth, it's not funny. There are lots of different things that you can do for arthritis in the hand. You shouldn't always do them, but there, there are lots of different options apart from the non-operative treatment when it comes to surgical treatment of arthritis in the hand. It's really, and that's really very much joint dependent, what kind of arthritis you've got, the pattern of it and all those sort of things. And again, really, again, in principle, if you can avoid surgery, that's a good thing. But if you've failed all the non-operative uh, measures and failed all the non-operative treatments, and there are some very good operations for treating arthritis in the hand. And and so that's something that I frequently come across when patients come to see me is that, that belief that there's nothing you can do and they need to suffer. And patients don't need to suffer. You know, we, we're, as orthopedic surgeons in general, we're pretty good at treating pain. So pain is the most important factor, and we're pretty good at treating that. We're not quite as good at restoring function back to normal, but we're, we're definitely pretty better at, uh, at treating the pain for people. And for instance, in the, the tip of the finger joint, so the, the finger joint just below the fingernail there, those joints we tend to fuse for the most part, um, and that's a very good and reliable operation. There is a joint replacement for that joint as well. It's not as widely done, and you can't do it in all the fingers, but that, that also uh, helps people. For the next joint along, we pretty much, the next two joints along, really, we do joint replacements. Um, so they actually look like little tiny baby knee replacements, mm. um, just a lot smaller. Yeah. <laughs> um, and uh, I actually call it the femur and the tibia in the operating theatre so that the nurses know what I'm talking about. <laughs> uh, and so, and look, look they're, they're good, great for pain relief, but we don't have the same reliability maybe as the hips and knee replacements at this stage, but, but they're, they're pretty good. And they're, but like most arthritis operations, most arthritis operations are designed for older people yeah. with most Mostly that's who it affects. Um, and then in the thumb. So in the thumb, we sort of do something a little bit different. We, I do it depending on age and also um, you know, dominance of the hand and what occupation it is. I might do a, a procedure where I actually remove one of the bones from the base of the thumb. Uh, so for that, do that for older patients, and that's called a suspension plasty. And then I uh, – or I may fuse the joint in somebody who's younger and has particularly a manual worker type, uh, type situation. But yeah, there's lots, lots of different options for arthritis in the hand and, and in the wrist. And, uh, and so people can be assured that, you know, that there are things you can do. Um, we won't always recommend them depending on your situation, but there are definitely lots of different options that you can, uh, you can go through. Now, Anthony, as a chiropractor, how are your hands going? Well, you know, people often ask me that. They say, gee, you must be having, you know, do you get sore hands? I, I once, I think in my practice career I got sore hands once. and that was once. once. It was when I went from being a fifth year Cairo student, yeah. seeing very few people in, you know, student yeah, clinic, you know, exactly. and taking forever to see one person. Yes. Going into a locum for a busy practice yes. and then Okay. After two weeks of that, everything in my body was sore, right. my hands yes. in particular, but you learn how to Adapt, use them yeah. in a way and particularly to make sure that you don't, uh, you know, have the wrist at an angle that is going to create harm. Yeah, but, uh, yeah. but, yeah, no, you? I, I've done. Oh, no, pretty good. Yeah, not too bad. But, I mean, I've been practicing as long as you have, so I'm, uh, hey, I'm, just, I'm just thinking <laughs> that the arthritic thing might be coming <laughs> earlier for you than me, but anyway. So, so Jason, <laughs> I, I guess, you know, as a surgeon there, you know, it's a, a potentially a very rewarding job, but I suppose it's also potentially frustrating also. What are some of the frustrations that you see on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis? Oh, so the, probably the biggest frustration is now, no offense here, but delay in diagnosis yep. and, and people feeling like, they, um, you know, it's just the finger and so I shouldn't worry about it. And when the treatment early on is actually pretty straightforward and not too difficult, 
And one of the biggest frustrations is I get I see somebody and it's been three, four months since their injury or three or four months they've had the problem and then it's way more difficult to look after and the results are not as good and this goes for, for yeah. fractures, for dislocations, for tendon injuries, for, for the whole range of injuries and uh, and conditions that people leave it too long um, and think, oh, well, it's only a hand and I don't need to worry about it. You know, we don't. I don't. I think we underestimate how um, how significant the disability is when your hand's not working properly. Even if it's just one finger, mm. even just your little finger, for that matter. You know, people go, oh, "It's just a little finger," especially they think, "Oh, it's in, little finger doesn't matter." But it plays such an important role in your grip strength and your ability to grab onto things and hold onto things. And until it doesn't work properly, you don't realise how significant that can be. So yeah, I, I certainly find that frustrating, and I have to take a deep breath when somebody comes in and says, "Oh, yeah, look, I injured it." Six months ago, um, can you do something? And I'm like, well, you know, maybe now, but uh, you know, it's when it, when it probably would have been really straightforward to treat at the start, and often non-operatively treated at the start. And so, a lot of conditions that could have been treated non-operatively become operative as well because of, because of that delay. I got a funny feeling Caleb might be now pushing for Foxtel as well. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, in, his, in his room as well. <laughs> That's right, exactly. Luckily, it wasn't three to four months; it was only a few weeks. But uh, I get you. No, fair point. Fair point. Now, what do you think uh, regards innovations in hand surgery? I mean, it's we've um, spoken to spinal surgeons and foot surgeons about new new innovations in their fields and crafts. What's what's the go in the hand surgery world? So, I think the um, the, oh, the the holy grail, if you like, for orthopedics, I think, is the ability to um, to prevent arthritis would be the holy grail. Yeah. Um, you know, if we could we could stop people from getting arthritis, that would be Fantastic, because obviously prevention is better than cure. So if we could we could do that, though, I think that would be amazing. I think in, in hand surgery in particular, that I think the um, the ability to do good joint replacements that last reliably for a long period of time, like hip and knee replacements, for instance, I think that'll be the next big innovation because we're not quite there yet. Um, they're okay, but they're not fantastic yet, and um, I think that'll be the the next thing that comes along. And uh, look. It's amazing how rapidly things change. You know, even even in my training cycle, um, things some new things came along that revolutionised the way we treat stuff. So it's uh, it's changing in, impressively and very quickly. Um, so I, I, th- I think that'll be the next thing in hand surgery will be just better joint replacements that we can uh, help people with their arthritis. But the holy grail is still trying to prevent that. Mm. And there are plenty of people. There are plenty of people working on that too. And when you say prevent, I mean, what sort of domain are you saying there? Regards um, uh, advice on on functional activities, etc. That sort of level we're talking about, or you know, what's can you can you, can you deepen a bit there? Yeah, so I think that there's there's the, the functional activities and things like that. It, um, that's always very difficult because we don't want to limit people's lifestyles and and say, oh, we, you, you shouldn't be. If you love to jog, you shouldn't jog. You shouldn't go and play football. You shouldn't play netball or whatever it might be. So, yeah. uh, and, and accidents are going to happen. But, um, but I think that the, the probably the most important factor for the development of arthritis is genetic. And so, our understanding of the, what genetic things are going on that lead to somebody getting arthritis, I think, will be the next thing. And we may be able to you know, modulate that and change the way our, our genetic proteins are given off. Because you know, just uh, arthritis certainly runs in families, be it rheumatoid arthritis or osteoarthritis. So if we can work out what pathway that actually occurs in, then there's a, there's a potential to be able to switch that off and prevent people from getting arthritis at all. 
which would be fantastic, yeah. especially because we're living so much longer. Mm. You know, we live way longer than we used to, and uh, realistically, we're not really designed to live till 100, but you know, more and more people are, and so we, we, we're wearing out. Mm, that's right, yeah. Now, um, neurologists will always like a benign positional vertigo because it's one of those sorts of things that can have dramatic symptoms in terms of the dizziness and dysnagavus and so forth, but often has a, a, a very highly successful and simple treatment. Uh, in hand surgery, there's certain things in obviously carpal tunnels right up there and the, I'm just thinking of the patients that I know that have had carpal tunnel and most of them have done very, very well. Is carpal tunnel one of those things you think, okay, well, we have to do this. I'm pretty confident this is going to be successful. It's one of those bread and butter ones. They're perfect, and I'm assuming that things like the joint replacements, they're the trickier ones that might keep you awake at night wondering, gee, I hope this one goes okay. What's the, the good and the bad or the, the easy and the difficult when it comes to hand surgery? Yeah, so I think you're right. A carpal tunnel for somebody with those classic symptoms, and that's um, oh, great. I love it when they walk in and I, they go, oh, but numbness in my thumb and my index finger. I wake up at night every night. I'm getting this tingling feeling. I'm like, it's fantastic. It's, it's, that makes my job nice and easy, and the operation, as you say, is great. It's fantastic for those people. They get immediate relief of their symptoms. The very night of surgery, they go home. They don't, they don't wake up in the middle of the night with their hand going numb, so that's fantastic. So those sort of things, trigger fingers, um, you know, catching of the flexor tendons of the fingers, that's, uh, that's a pretty reliable one. My uh, fracture work is kind of plus and minus. So if you see somebody with a smashed apart wrist or a smashed apart finger then that keeps me awake at night because it's yeah. their hard work um, a lot of a lot of sweat goes into those ones and yeah. uh, and you don't know how they're going to go for quite a while because yeah there's a lot of a lot of soft tissue scarring so they're, they're always hard but um, my favorite things to do I love arthroscopic surgery is my you know my favorite thing to do it's uh, I think that's a uh, a, an interesting workspace is that you know we're very much interested in trying to do minimally invasive stuff all the time, minimise our soft tissue damage, and get people back to function faster um, and more reliably. And I think uh, that some of the arthroscopic surgery now is uh, is heading down that road, and I'm, I'm pretty excited about about being able to do that. So, can you just um, maybe without going into extraordinary detail, but just uh, elaborate a little bit on what would happen with a joint replacement in a finger? So what are the what are the steps that you sort of take once you the once a decision's been made you're in the surgery what yep. a b c d what what do you actually do? So generally, like like all surgeries, you know, got a nice sterile feel, but basically along the back of the finger, so on the fingernail side of the finger, um, I make a cut straight over the top of the joint, uh, and then what I'm looking at pretty much straight away because there's not a whole lot of soft tissue and there's no muscles in the finger. Um, I'm looking at the tendons on the back of the finger, yeah. and I effectively split those straight down the middle and I release the tendons off the bones and then I'm looking at the joint surface. So it's actually a pretty quick exposure to actually get down to the joint, again, because there's no soft tissue there, no hardly any. And then, then I've got to prepare the joint the joint surface, the, the native joint surface for the joint replacement. So it's a bit um, – I'm a carpenter, really. I'm a, I'm, I'm a carpenter, but my, my medium is not timber. I'm, my medium is bones. So and you don't take offence to that, Jason. That's nice. Some, some surgeons do take personal offence to that. You know. so, not like in carpenters, of course. They're very important, you know. Carpentry is great fun. So I, I, get, I get out my saw and I, uh, I make a cut and I cut basically cut the bone perpendicular to, the, to its long axis there. And then I have a little, bunch of little instruments that I knock into the bone 
Um, now, most of my patients are awake, so I do it on a local anaesthetic with a bit of sedation. So I must say it freaks some people out because they hear me soaring away and then they hear me banging away with the ballot uh, as yeah. I put in the – Really? Put in the, uh, yeah, yeah, they do. And they're that like, what are you doing really? over there? <laughs> this, this is the renovations in the hospitals in adjacent. Is that yeah, the sort yeah, of yeah, idea yeah, yeah, me do? Yeah. Yeah. Jesus, that's, 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 that's David Delahab up on the seventh floor. That's, that's right. very dark. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Doing it on the spine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, um, so, yeah, so, so then I'm, I create the surface, so the, the implants, and then I put these little trial implants in there and then make sure that the finger can go through a full range of motion. And then I actually cement them into the bone. Right. So we've got this special cement. It's called polymethyl methacrylate, and it's this, um, like, usually white most commonly, and uh, it heats up, and then I squirt it into the canal of the bone because the bones are hollow in the center, and then I implant those little uh, little metal. I use a metal and plastic ones. Some people use silicon ones, and that's this other material called pyrocarbon. But I use uh, these little metal and plastic implants, and I uh, cement them in and then hold pressure until the cement sets, and that usually takes about a oh, six or seven minutes, and then I get an x-ray in the operating theatre and make sure that it uh, it all looks okay, and we go from there. Very interesting, Jazz. I wish um, if we could have asked that question beforehand, then Caleb mightn't have followed through the rest of the podcast, right. you know, because yeah. we were starting to rip open skin <laughs> yeah. and bones and all the rest. Yeah. I'm not sure we would have uh, got to the foxtail comment a bit earlier, yeah. um, but that's yeah, very interesting, the, the deep insight. Now, Jason, the standard question we seem to be asking surgeons, Anthony, regards PMP and stem cell um, type interventions. Do you have any thoughts on those two interventions? Is that something that's in your space, or um, yeah, it certainly is when it when it comes to elbow in particular. Okay. Um, the I think it is unclear at the moment as to where that really fits into to the treatment of because it's for ten oh, most experience or most I've heard of it in hand and wrist or in an elbow is really for uh, tendinopathies. Yeah. So people with tennis elbow, golfer's elbow, those sort of problems. Yeah. And um, I think the with the PRP. PRP, excuse me. Yep. That's right. <clears throat> the. One of the difficulties is is the the research is not that's out there is not uniform. So they there's all sorts of different preparations. So some have more white cells in it, and so and some have more platelets in it. Okay. And so they're not really comparing apples and apples. So it's very difficult to really draw any significant conclusions from how good they are. Um, I think they're relatively um, low risk. Mm-hmm. So not, yeah. I don't think they're no risk, but they're relatively low risk. And certainly I, I have no issue with people trying them before they have an operation. I think that's worthwhile. And um, if you can do that, then I think that's probably worthwhile. Sometimes they can be a bit expensive. And, and for something that doesn't have a whole lot of research about it, I, I worry about that a little bit. And so if you're having to pay thousands of dollars for PRP, then I think um, maybe you should think again because you should be able to do it for a lot less than that. Okay. Um, so I think that, I think there's – possibly a space for it, but I don't know what that role is. There's a few studies going on at the moment I know of where they're looking at PRP. Um, then um, stem cells generally has been talked about for arthritic-type problems. Yeah, I'm, that, that one I'm not so convinced on because the joint is a hostile environment. So the joint is not a very nice place for cells and for things because they just can't get – they can't live there. They can't stick to anything because the bones – like a piece of sheet of concrete, effectively, and it's yeah. very nothing gets in there. So to imagine that those cells somehow stick to the bone and then form cartilage, I think is, I, I just I can't 
physiologically see, I can't see how that's going to happen. I'd like it to because, again, that would be a great thing. Stem cells in other areas, you know, perhaps maybe, you know, in tendinopathies, maybe there's a role for them there. And, and uh, I'm, I am actually involved in a research trial on um, autologous tenocytes, which are not stem cells per se, but, but um, where we take a biopsy of some tendon cells and then we grow them in the lab and inject them into, you know, a tendon or an elbow tendon to try and regrow them. Um, but we're doing a, a research trial on that to see if it actually works. So, I, I th- yeah, I'm not I'm not sure where that space is. I, I don't discount it entirely, but I'm a little bit sceptical about all the hype at this stage. You know, most uh, interventions and most things go through a phase where everybody goes, "Oh, it's fantastic! Mm-hmm. It's awesome!" And then you know, it drops off a little bit, and then sort of goes up and down a bit, and then you find where the real part of where it fits in and I suspect that it won't be quite the cure-all that we, we hope but you know I'm sure that there's a role for it somewhere just and one final quick question just a quick answer on this one <coughs> so who are conducting these are these orthopedic surgeons have a special interest in it or is it radiologists I mean who's sort of doing this yeah, fairly few orthopedic surgeons are doing it. it's mostly either radiologists because it often gets done under ultrasound guidance right yeah. so yeah. mostly radiologists or sports physicians okay the most two yeah. most common groups that are yeah. doing those, those sort of injections yeah, thank you no, interesting it's a, 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 it's really interesting how technology evolves because we had this conversation with david delaharp also about the disc replacement ah, yes, and how did. that became you know you know all oh, this could be the new best thing and yep. and then suddenly yep. the people who are really advocating for it think oh you know well it hasn't quite been the uh, the, the golden chalice that we'd hoped for is it a bit like a honeymoon in a relationship <laughs> it starts fantastic <laughs> and then it goes through a few pl- and then you have a settling point is uh, that sort of it yeah. i don't know i'm not sure yeah, a lot of a lot of procedures are like that. You know, a lot of devices anyway. You know, everyone gets real excited yeah. and everyone wants to do it. Uh, I feel like I'm a bit conservative. I, I, I don't like to be the first one on board, yeah. but I also don't want to be the last one to get yeah. off. No. So I, I, I sort of you know like to see at least some track record, especially yeah. for new implants, because we've got some reliable ones out there. So. Yep. No, that's uh, interesting. And we and look, you know, it's it's a it's a decision about what part of the train you catch on. I suppose in some ways, isn't it? Here we go. Yeah, that's right. Now, what about 3D printing and modelling enhanced surgery? Is that something that's uh, coming to use nowadays? Yeah, I think that's an exciting development. And, uh, you know, the ability and the availability of 3D printing now is um, fantastic. You know, the technology, I love, I love technology and it is awesome. Um, it's also got the cool factor. So, you know, 3D printing mm. is pretty cool. And yeah, so if I tell yeah. patients I'm doing a 3D print of their fracture or something like that, they're like, oh, that's awesome. Let me yeah. see it. Um, I use it for specific circumstances. So if I've got a particularly difficult deformity in the hand or wrist that I'm trying to um, trying to correct, then I can get a 3D print of it and I can actually do that with a CT scan as well. We come up with a three-dimensional model and then we can effectively practice cuts. And I do that with a, there's a company that I used where we do it and do a cut the bone with virtual reality on the computer and then move it to the position we want it to do and put a plate and screws on there. And then we make guides for it with 3D printing. And uh, basically the guides come and I attach them to the bone and drill a whole bunch of holes, cut it, and then you know, put it back together like a jigsaw the way it looked like on the computer. And that's uh, that's pretty awesome. So, yeah, it's a fantastic technology. Well, that, that's absolutely amazing isn't it? to be able to practice your surgery and maybe modify it depending on how it all worked out with the three-print model. And, of course, yeah, exactly. you would also, I, I imagine, demonstrate that to, to the patient. This is what we're going to be doing using that three-print yeah. model. Oh, absolutely. Because, you know, just being able to hold it and see it in 3D, 
versus looking at it on a on a um, screen from an X-ray or a CT scan. You know, we're, we're not everyone can their head can get around that flat picture. Yeah, you know, converting that to a three D model. So that is a, that's really valuable. And look, one day I, I suspect one day we'll be able to actually um, print bones. So if you get a bone that's completely you know been blasted apart, you might be able to. Uh, you know, reprint a new one and stick that in there instead, and that'd be pretty cool too. Absolutely. Well, the, the times are, you know, you've got to keep, stay abreast, don't you, really? The times, they are changing. You know, it's amazing. Yeah, well, they absolutely are. You know, technology and uh, trying to stay, stay ahead of the game. Now, Jason, we, we like to talk with our talent, uh, the person we're interviewing about a pivotal experience, and it's uh, the reason we do this is we're, we know from our end we're privileged to ask some very intelligent people about their craft and their specialties, and there may have been a, a pivotal experience that listener may sort of get some inspiration from as well. Could you share with our back chat listeners uh, uh, an experience relevant to this? Yeah, sure. Look, I mean, I am in a privileged position that I get to see some pretty amazing things throughout my career, and 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 there are a lot I can sort of think of that. But I, you know, there's there's a few that have stuck out in my mind. And one, particularly when I was in med school, was uh, I was working at the children's hospital. And uh, look, it, it, Children's Hospital is a tough place to work because you know you've got these kids who really they're so innocent and they haven't you know been corrupted by anything and they just get some of them get you know, have terrible problems. And I was always drawn to the orthopedic side of stuff, so I really enjoyed that. And one day we came across this twelve-year-old kid who had a big bone tumor in their in their knee, effectively, um, and he was going to lose his leg. Really? So you know, there's no, there was no other way around it. He, you had to, you have to cut that tumor out. You know, it gets chemo and all that sort of stuff, but it, you have to resect it, so you have to cut it out. And he was going to lose his, his knee anyway. And so the resilience of that kid was fantastic. But then apart from that, the surgeons that were involved in it, they did this operation, and it's called a Van Ness rotation plus. Basically, what they did is they cut out a piece of his leg in the middle. So they cut out the bone with the tumour in the knee, above the knee and then below the knee and left all the nerves and arteries that crossed that part intact and then took his foot, spun his leg around 180 degrees and attached his foot to the end of his um, end of his femur so that his ankle now became his new knee joint. That's right. So that instead of having a prosthesis that went right up to his hip, he now had one that was effectively below his knee. And I saw this kid literally like, a month later, and he's running around with a prosthesis on, and he was the happiest kid you could believe. You know, sure, his life his life had been saved, which is amazing. But to see that being done, and to see that kid running around as happy as can be after having that done, that was pretty awe-inspiring, and it cemented for me why I love the idea of surgery and what. You know what is achievable sometimes. I mean, you don't always get to do that sort of thing. Like I didn't do that operation, but but you get. I think that was truly inspiring for me seeing that being done for for someone, and uh, yeah, it certainly left a lasting impression on me. Wow, that's a, that's an amazing story. Can it you is, believe that, uh, that, you, that 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 can be done? That's just incredible. I mean, the the, the brilliant brains behind that operation, but also, am I also getting that the fact that your the resilience of that child as well, you know, that, you know, the abilities of that child to sort of deal with all that too and come out stronger and happier. And, you know, we talk about about sweating on the small stuff. We've talked about it many times in the the podcast and you think, my goodness, you know, it's just so tiny compared to examples like this, Jason. 
that, that's it's, it's so true, and you know you see that all the time. You know, I I, um, I was lucky enough recently to go to Vietnam and seeing the facilities over there, and you know, a room that we would normally have one person in, they had six people in that room, and just it was it was so busy and so crowded, and yet they're like they're appreciative and happy that somebody is treating them, and their relatives bringing the food and stuff for them in the hospital, and it was just uh, people. When the when backs are against the wall, people are. Uh, you know, that's when you see their true character come out and their mm. true spirit, and it's. Uh, I reckon that's fantastic. Yeah. It's a real honour to be yeah, a, yeah. a healthcare provider in those situations, Indeed. isn't it? Uh, okay. Um, in, in wrapping up, are there three take home messages that you'd like to share with our back chat listeners? Uh, so, well, firstly, I guess as much as I alluded to earlier on, is that um, that don't ignore your hand complaints. Don't ignore your symptoms. They, you know, they, they, they may seem trivial at times, but, but they are not necessarily trivial. And they, I think it is really important to listen to your body. I mean, your body is giving you those signals for a reason. It's telling you you've got pain because something's going on or you get your, your hands going numb because something's going on. So don't just ignore those things. You've got to listen to your body. And, and the other thing is you've got to listen to what your head says. So I think that we're, we're actually pretty in tune most of the time with what's going on with us. We know when something's not quite right. And if it's not quite right, I think that it, you know we're well with, you should be well within your rights to go and find out what's going on. Now, we may not always have the answer as the medical professionals, but, but I think that it's, uh, it's really important to listen to your body and, and listen to your symptoms and listen to your head and, uh, and get those things checked out because uh, there's, as, as, as I said earlier, is a lot of these things can be treated so easily early on mm-hmm. and it's way better treating early than, than waiting until it's really disastrous. Um, I think in the, being an orthopedic surgeon, look, I love or being a surgeon in general, I love to operate. You know, that's, that's one of my things. I, I love being in the operating theatre. That's my stage, if you like, and I love being there. But when you come to see a surgeon, don't be surprised if we say you don't need an operation mm. because most, you know, not every condition needs an operation. Um, and there are, I reckon the majority of people I see, I actually say you don't need an operation. I operate probably on 20 or 30% of the people I see. Um, so I'm, you know, two, two or three out of 10, I will say, you know, I think surgery is appropriate for you, certainly initially anyway. Uh, so, yeah, so don't think just because you're seeing a surgeon that you're definitely going to have an operation. We, we, we very well may say, oh, look, yeah, look surgery is not really the, the answer for you. Um, and I think that's really important. I think it's really important when a surgeon tells you they don't want to operate, that's probably more important than when, when a surgeon tells you they do mm. because, you know, as I said, we love to operate, so we'll get you in there, in there in a flash if we think it's worth it. So um, the, the – and I think that um, – for health professionals, listen to your kids. The, uh, <laughs> Jason. Appropriate. Well done, Jason. Oh, goodness. Now I have to cut that Just bit out of it as well. Gosh. going to be one in his car in advance suit 13 or something. Go on. <laughs> Go on. Very good. Uh, I tell you, it's, it's been a very common thing yes. with other three surgeons yeah. that we spoke to recently. And, and, you know, they've all said, you know, in, in different words but in a similar meaning, if you're going to see a surgeon, don't be disappointed if the answer is no surgery. Yes. So, uh, so, and I think that's a you know that's obviously something that's drummed into surgeons right from the start because that's very much the you know the, the their approach. And on the flip side, I suppose that patient is probably looking for that curative component that may have come and failed through conservative care and then 
thinking, okay, well, I'm going to see Jason now. I've tried the physio. It hasn't worked. Now I'm going to try Jason. And, you know, Jason will have the answers. Yeah. And Jason goes, well, actually, you know, the best scenario yeah. here is to retry maybe the conservative care. Or, I mean, what do you find a lot of those patients who you say no to surgery haven't really followed through conservative care properly? Is that often the Yeah, reason? I think that's part of, part of the issue. And um, I think it's also quite challenging to do non-operative treatment. Because it's pretty labour intensive, so you know you might have to do exercise and you've got to do them just you know each day, and that's that's pretty hard to do. I remember you know I had my ACL reconstructed and I got to about six months. And I was like, oh, that half was too hard. So you know, it's yeah. I think that it, the non-operative stuff is pretty challenging to to keep up with. Um, I guess from a surgical perspective, we're always concerned that. Because surgery is not a quick fix most of the time. So even if you have an operation, it doesn't mean you're better like in a day or two. You, it often takes quite a while to fully recover from the surgery. So I'm always a bit cautious when somebody after it say, oh, I want to get better faster. Well, so, yeah, well, that's not necessarily the case with surgery. But I think, yeah, you're right that it's, um, you know, a lot of people haven't necessarily had the right direction or been given, given the right sort of regime. And it's about guiding people to try and get them to that point. And once they really have tried and exhausted all the non-operative means, I think they actually do better with surgery if they've tried everything else first yeah. as well yeah. because they're in a better headspace to yes. sort of go, okay, look, I've really given it a proper shot at everything else before yeah. I go down the road of surgery. Yeah, excellent. Good final point. What do you think, Anthony? Yeah, excellent. It's, uh, just, uh, it gives people just that, that understanding of, you know, other options, but, you know, we don't jump into anything too soon. Thank you so much, Jason. Oh, my pleasure. It's, uh, it was great, great chatting with you. Excellent. Jason works in a group practice, Orthosport Victoria in Richmond, and the website is www.osv.com.au and also has a public appointment at Dandenong Hospital. Thank you for listening to Backchat. To stay abreast with updates with Backchat, please go to our Facebook page, www.facebook.com forward slash Backchat Podcast. All relevant website links of today's podcast will be on our Backchat Podcast Facebook page. If you like this show, please leave a five-star rating on iTunes. We leave you one thought, be the best at what you do and you will grow and inspire others around you. We look forward to catching up with you on our next Backchat podcast. This has been a production of thewellnesscouch.com. Check us out on Facebook and join in the conversation on facebook.com forward slash thewellnesscouch. Subscribe to each show on iTunes and check us out on Twitter. The Wellness Couch, streaming wellness into your lives. Whilst the Wellness Couch presenter endeavor to provide accurate and helpful information to their listeners, these podcasts cannot take into account individual circumstances and are not intended to be a substitute for health and medical advice from a qualified health professional. You should always seek the advice of a qualified health professional before acting on any of the information provided by any of the Wellness Couch podcasts.